Our scripture reading for tonight comes from Mark chapter 9, uh, verses 30 to 37. So hear the word of our Lord. They left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid to ask him about it. They came to Capernaum when he was in the house. He asked them, what were you arguing about on the road? But they kept quiet because on the way they had argued about who was the greatest. Sitting down, Jesus called the twelve and said, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. He took a little child whom he placed among them, taking the child in his arms. He said to them, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me, and whoever welcomes me doesn't, or whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. This is the word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Again, my name is Kyle. I'm one of the pastors here at Grace. If I haven't had a chance to meet you, um, we're excited that you're here. Um, I want to add my welcome to Brad's also. We are continuing our study in the book of Mark today. Um, so just remember where we've been. Um, chapter 8, Peter declares that Jesus is the Messiah. He's the one that would come to set up his reign here on earth. He was the one that was going to restore Israel, defeat all of her enemies, and make all things right. And after, he, after that happens, Jesus then foretells of his re- rejection, of his death, of his resurrection. Peter hears this, and he goes, no, we're, we're not doing that, Jesus. Let's, let's not do that. Let's not do this death and resurrection stuff. Jesus rebukes him. Um, rightfully, and then describes how his followers must deny themselves, how they must take up their crosses and daily follow him. Then Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, and they go up the mountain. They see Jesus in his full glory, totally revealed um, at his transfiguration. And then they come down the mountain, and that's where Brad um, showed us last week. They come down the mountain, and they're immediately confronted with this darkness, They're immediately confronted with this little boy who's demon-possessed, and the disciples can't drive this demon out uh, because they're resting in. They're relying on their own power. They aren't praying. They aren't resting in and trusting and placing their faith in Jesus. And then we come to our passage for this evening, and we see the disciples, they're still confused. Even though they've plainly heard Jesus now, this is the second time talk about his suffering, his death, and his resurrection. Even though three of them have seen Jesus in all of his glory revealed on the mountain, they're still confused. And if we're honest, we can kind of tend to be a little tough on the disciples here, but we really shouldn't be. Because if you remember, um, up until this point, Jesus has been teaching in parables. Uh, So they've been struggling to understand the deeper, the hidden meanings of Jesus' teaching. And so now Jesus is wanting wanting them to understand this teaching um, at face value about his death and resurrection. And so it's no wonder that they can't really wrap their minds around what's going on here. They're looking for this hidden meaning for Jesus, and they can't find it. Their expectations of what the Messiah would do were based on their own expectations. They were based on their incomplete understanding of the scripture. Again, we said it earlier, the Messiah, they thought, would come to restore Israel primarily through a military victory and defeating all of Israel's enemies. But the disciples couldn't see that their primary enemy, the primary enemy that God wanted to take care of was sin and death. And the only way for sin and death to be defeated, the only way for Jesus' kingdom to really be established was through suffering, was through death, and through resurrection. 
So, the disciples have their misplaced expectations, and this leads them to adopt misplaced kingdom priorities. Um, And if we're honest, you and I do that too. Um, When our lives are not informed, when they're not shaped, when they're not defined by the cross, we too can begin to focus on things that God doesn't desire for us and elevate them to primary places in our hearts and in our lives. So please pray with me, and we're going to jump into our text for this evening. Father, we thank you for your goodness and your grace to us, uh, for the way that you love us and pursue us, for the way that you're patient and tender and gracious to us. We ask that you would free us uh, to hear your word tonight, to rest in and to trust in you and your death and resurrection, to be defined by the cross, uh, to have our expectations for who you are and what you're doing shaped by you and not ourselves. Uh, Father, we need you this evening. It's in your name, in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. I have three kids, and my oldest daughter is Ella, and when she was about four years old, um, we were getting ready to celebrate her birthday party. Um, We were talking to her about, I asked her for permission to talk to you guys about this. Um, We were talking to her about what she wanted, what she wanted to do for her birthday, and we were thinking, you know, an American Girl doll, if she was crazy, um, Barbie Dreamhouse, you know, maybe something like that. And uh, when we started talking to her, we asked her, okay, well, what do you want for your birthday? And she looked at us and she said, I want a tree house. Um, And if our house at the time, we didn't have any trees in the backyard. Um, So this was going to be pretty impossible to pull off. And so we said, Ella, we love you. Um, We would love to get you a tree house. That's just not realistic at all for what we're doing right now. Um, It's it's too much for a birthday present. We don't have the room for it. We don't have a tree to do it for. Um, It's just just not really going to work. And she looked at us. She seemed to understand, and she goes, okay, I got it. Let's go to Disney World. (laughs) And so (laughs) we laughed in her face um, and said, you know, baby, it was totally inappropriate. um, We didn't say it was inappropriate for her to ask that, but it was inappropriate for her to ask for Disney World after we just explained to her that... um, that we wouldn't be able to provide a treehouse for. You know, if a treehouse was too much for her birthday, then Disney World was definitely not on the table for her. Um, But she's little, and she didn't understand the way money works and the way things go. Um, But we tried to help her manage her expectations a little bit more. Uh, So the reason I tell you that silly story tonight is because it's a little bit like what's going on with the disciples here this evening in our text. Um, Jesus is continually teaching his disciples, and he tells them the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men. They're going to kill him. And then after three days, he will rise again. It's certain. It's definitely going to happen. But they didn't understand what he meant, and they were afraid, and so they didn't ask him about it. And they immediately respond with, you know, amongst themselves, yeah, 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 Jesus, that's cool, but who among us is really the greatest? Like, you're going to die, that's fine, but who among us is the greatest? So their response to Jesus is completely inappropriate um, and misplaced because they didn't understand. Um, So this evening, I just have two points for us. One, misplaced gospel expectations lead to misplaced kingdom priorities. So misplaced gospel expectations lead to misplaced kingdom priorities. And two, gospel-centered expectations lead to gospel-based kingdom priorities. So first... 
Misplaced gospel expectations lead to misplaced kingdom priorities. Here, the disciples in our text, they continue to reveal to us how much they misunderstand the values of God's kingdom because their expectations for who Jesus is and what he was going to do were misplaced and totally misinformed. They hear Jesus talk about being the son of man here. Um, And so their minds race back to Daniel 7. And and, in verse 13 and 14, we hear this. In my vision at night, I looked... And there before me was like a son of man coming with the clouds of heaven. He approached the ancient of days and was led into his presence. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and peoples of every language worshipped him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. So their minds race back to this passage from Daniel, they're remembering, okay, this is who this son of man is. They think this son of man, this Messiah, he's going to usher in his kingdom with this military victory and with this great triumph. They're still missing um, that Jesus is uniting the son of man and the Messiah to the suffering servant in Isaiah that we've read about earlier. Uh, Their expectations for Jesus accomplishing his purposes have no room for suffering. They have no room for defeat and for death. Tim Keller in his uh, Mark study says it's like this. He says, imagine you're on a campaign uh, trying to get a man elected as president. Um, And the the man that you're trying to get elected comes to you one day and he gathers you around and he says, listen, here's how the campaign's going to end. I'm going to lose. And at the end, the opposition is going to assassinate me. But don't worry, it's all part of my plan. It's all going to work out. Um, You know, you would think the guy was crazy, or at least he's being sarcastic and he's trying to get the people to work harder for him, um, and he's trying to motivate them to, to work harder. So, you know, the disciples hear this type of story from Jesus, this teaching, it's no wonder they're confused. But they're not just confused, they're afraid. They don't want to admit how confused they are and how afraid they are because last time Peter confronted Jesus about this, he got rebuked, and they know they don't want to experience that again. So they're silent. They don't go to Jesus in their fear and in their confusion. And so just as an aside to us this evening, if you're confused, if you're afraid about who Jesus is and what he's doing, let me encourage you, don't let your confusion and your fear freeze you and lead you into silence like the disciples. Approach Jesus in prayer. Go to him. Look to him in his word. Let his word, let him reorient you to himself. Let him define you. He can handle your fear. He can handle all of your confusion. It doesn't shock him. It doesn't drive him away from you. He'll be patient and gracious and loving and kind to you just as he is with the disciples. So let's go back to the disciples here. Their expectations for, what, for who Jesus is, what he's going to accomplish, are totally misplaced. And so they begin to argue amongst themselves, which of us is the greatest? They're asking each other. You know, they could either be thinking, one, you know, who among us is going to lead alongside Jesus? Who's going to have the greatest seat of power and prestige and prominence and authority with Jesus when he takes his king, when he takes his kingdom? Or Maybe Jesus is really being honest about having to die. And so which one of us is the greatest? Which one of us is going to take over this mission once he's gone? So because they have these totally misplaced expectations of of Jesus, their priorities, focusing on their own greatness, um, their priorities of what they think are important and and their hearts are focusing on are totally out of line with what Jesus is calling us, with what Jesus is calling his followers to. If 
Jesus' kingdom is primarily a political one that's going to be accomplished through military force. It's no wonder and it's reasonable to expect that those closest to Jesus would share more of his power, would share more of his authority, would share more of his greatness. But if Jesus' kingdom is accomplished through suffering and through service, then those closest to Jesus would share more of his pain, of his suffering, of his rejection, of his humbling. That, if we're honest, it doesn't really sound too appealing to us. Um, and that might be part of why the disciples are afraid and confused. Um, again, Tim Keller says it this way, since they don't see the disciples, since they don't see how dying on a cross could lead to salvation and power, they don't see how humility and service can lead to strength and greatness. They don't see how weakness and submission could ever lead to increased influence, authority, and power. Because the disciples' expectations of who Jesus is and what he's about are completely misplaced, it drives them to misplaced priorities. Jesus is talking about his death and resurrection, and the disciples are arguing over who among them is the greatest. They're concerned with and wrapped up with their own status, with their own positions of power and authority and influence, with their own prestige. And if we're honest, this isn't just the disciples' problem. It's our problem, too. When we don't adopt Jesus' expectations for what the kingdom of God will look like and how it will come about, we, too, can get really sidetracked with our misplaced expectations and our misplaced priorities. They won't be driven by Jesus and his cross. They won't be gospel-centered. They'll be centered around our selfishness and our own selfish desires. When, when you and I miss that the Christian life and God's kingdom priorities aren't always about success and upward mobility, it's not always about gaining influence and popularity and prestige and possessions, it's not always about getting what we want and what makes us happy and satisfied according to our own definitions of happiness and satisfaction. That's not about us getting our preferences and our expectations for what the good life is about met. Because when we, when we focus on those things, our own priorities are going to take precedence over Jesus' kingdom priorities. Jesus is teaching us here in this passage and throughout the Gospel of Mark that the Christian life... God's kingdom priorities are about dying to ourselves, dying to our sin. They're about loving God, loving our neighbor. They're about not focusing on ourselves and our own needs, but meeting the needs of those around us. Um, it's, he wants us to see that life, that resurrection, that power, prestige, and victory, they don't come through success. They don't come through winning according to the world's standards, but they come through death. They come through weakness and humility and service. So when we don't let Jesus and his cross be the thing that defines us, when we don't let the cross, his greatest service for us in his living and dying on the cross and his rising again so that we could be brought near, so that we could be made family members, so that we could be forgiven and made new and whole, when we don't let the one who is so gracious that he would die for us, when we don't let him define us, then we'll start defining ourselves according to anything around us. We'll start measuring our own greatness according to those around us and the standards that we arbitrarily create. Um, you know you're doing this. I know I'm doing this when I say things like, or you say things like, well, at least I'd never do that. Um, 
at least I'd never say that. Uh, you know, when we do that, we minimize our own brokenness and our own need of the cross, and we begin to look at others and measure ourselves according to those around us. We do it and we say, well, I'm not that bad. At least I don't um, do those things. Look at that person. At least I'm not like them. I'm not involved with those type of people. Again, we seek to elevate ourselves and elevate our own greatness by looking down on people that don't measure up to our own standards or our own expectations or our own preferences. So we create our own litmus tests to measure um, who's great and who's worthy. You know, we, we can do this with anything. In the church, you know, how reformed are you? Um, who are you reading and agreeing with? Um, who, who, where do you stand on this theological issue? Um, we do it culturally, you know. Um, where do you send your kids to school? Uh, what type of music and movies and, and books do you interact with? Um, what do you think about mass? What do you think about politics? Um, what do you think about this cultural movement or, or that one? Um, and then we can begin to think, you know, how are my needs? How are my preferences being met and catered to? And if they're not, then we're entitled to be mean to those around us. We're entitled to um, criticize and complain and look down on those that disagree with us or that don't measure up to our standards. You know, a question for us uh, here from that I'm, we're thinking about is, you know, how do you respond when you're not appreciated at home by your spouse or your kids? Um, this morning, I made breakfast for our family and then did the dishes, and no one liked breakfast, and no one helped with the dishes, and I'm just sitting there grumbling to myself while I'm working, and Megan came in and looked at me, and she's like, are you okay? And I was like, yeah, I don't like it when no one appreciates me here at the house. I'm not okay. This isn't fine. <laughs> um, so I need this too. So how do you respond when you're not valued at home or at school or at work? Um, how do you respond when you're not being noticed or you're not being praised? Um, do you fight to be noticed? Do you fight to be told that you're valuable? Do you hold grudges? Do you hold people at arm's length that don't agree with you, um, that don't measure up to your expectations and preferences? Um, when the cross isn't at the center of our lives, when the cross isn't driving our thoughts and our actions, then we begin to get wrapped up in all the things um, about ourselves. How are my needs being met? And then if you're not meeting my needs, then I can be mean to you. Then I can ignore you. Then I can humiliate you or shame you. You know, or we can begin to think, you know, I don't have as much as those people over there. I'm suffering more than those people, so there must be something wrong with me. Um, God must not love me as much as he loves them. So this evening, I want you to hear this. If you're tired, if you're worn down, if you're worried and suffering this evening, look at the cross. Your God knows your pain. He knows your suffering, and more than that, he took it on himself. Remember how much our God loves Jesus, and if you're his this evening, he loves you as much and to the same degree that he loves Jesus, and your suffering doesn't mean that God has left you, that God has abandoned you, that he doesn't love you. In this world of pain and suffering that we all experience, we don't worship a God who's immune to pain and suffering. We worship a God who took it all on himself and died for us. 
We need to let the cross define and shape our expectations for life. Jesus is trying to reorient the disciples and us here this evening to have gospel-centered expectations that lead to gospel-based kingdom priorities. So we've seen how our misplaced gospel expectations lead to misplaced kingdom priorities. I know it's like a a mouthful. Um, But now we're going to turn to to looking at um, gospel-centered expectations that lead to gospel-based kingdom priorities. So in verse 33, after they come to Capernaum, they go into a house. Um, Jesus is trying to get away so that they can, he can just teach his disciples. Um, it's likely Peter or Andrew's house. And Jesus turns to the disciples and he asks them, what were you arguing about on the road? Jesus isn't trying to gain any new information. He knows what they've been talking about. It's like um, when you have kids and they're arguing about something that they think is in private and you ask them later, like, hey, what were you all fighting about upstairs? Um, Jesus knows what they're talking about, um, but they're ashamed of their conversation because they know that he isn't going to um, approve of it. But here, don't miss this. Jesus, Jesus doesn't reject them. He doesn't shame them and be like, guys, stop it. We're not talking about that. Did you not listen to me? He doesn't do that at all. He gathers them together, and he's patient, and he's gracious, and he continues to move towards them. Verse 35, Jesus sits down, it says. This is a way for for Mark to signal to us and for Jesus to signal to the disciples, you know, what I'm about to say right now is really important. So gather around and listen. So Jesus sits down. He's recalibrating the disciples um, around his gospel-centered, around his cross-centered expectations for life. And then he says in verse 35, anyone who wants to be first must be the very last and the servant of all. Essentially, what Jesus is saying here is greatness in my kingdom does not come through how the, the world approaches greatness we commonly think that what it means to be great is, what it means to have arrived is when other people are serving you, um, when you've gained prestige and power and status. And Jesus says, no, that's not how my kingdom works. Preeminent status in my kingdom is characterized by lowliness, by humility, by hospitality and service, by providing for the needs of others. Jesus doesn't just say you must, you know, be merely last with this kind of like false sense of humility. He doubles down on this idea and he says you must be the very last. You must be a servant of all. A servant doesn't just do what they're told. That's an employee. A servant does what no one else is willing to do. And that's what our God does for us. He comes and serves us and dies on the cross as a ransom for many. And then what Jesus continues to do is he furthers this illustration um, in verse 36. He takes a child in his arms. He hugs the child. He embraces it. And he says in verse 37, "Whoever, whoever welcomes one of these little children in my name welcomes me. And whoever welcomes me does not welcome me, but the one who sent me. So what's going on here in this this illustration that Jesus is using? Jesus is using this child to illustrate how we think about, how we interact with, how we serve those with low or no status at all. In the first century, children um, did not have the priority that we place on them today. Um, Children back then were the lowest on the social um, strata. They had they had no status at all. They were essentially non-persons. 
They could just be, you could just get rid of a kid if you didn't want them anymore, if they were the wrong gender. Um, They had no rights, no status at all. And so to welcome a child here for Jesus is to welcome, to receive. It's a hospitality word, um, to celebrate and to provide and to care for a weak and a dependent person who's extensively needy and cannot repay you at all. This idea of welcome carries with it this nuance of treating as significant rather than ignoring or suppressing. So I want you to think for just a second about about children. Um, They're tremendously needy, um, and they don't know it, especially little children. Um, They're totally dependent upon you for everything, for getting dressed, for going to the bathroom, taking a a bath, eating a meal, um, for just their overall safety in general. Like, I remember... One time, one of my kids just, like, walked off the bed into my arms, and I was like, if I wasn't standing there, you would have just fell and hit your face on the ground, and from that height, you would have, we would have been spending the whole night in the hospital. Um, but when little kids are little, you have to run around and protect them from everything. You're constantly putting your hand in front of their face so they don't run into a sharp corner, so they don't fall off, um, you know, the, the stairs. Uh, we're constantly moving around to protect our needy kids. But then it's not just that. They can't promote your career. They can't offer you their vacation house in in Thanksgiving for you helping them. They don't do anything to advance your status. And then, to add to it, children are often ungrateful. You know, you drive them around from event to event to practice to practice. You give them a gift. They immediately complain about what they don't have, what they're not getting, what they want next. And what Jesus is trying to get us to see first here is that's who we are in God's eyes. We're needy, desperately needy, ungrateful children. And what God does for us, Paul says, is while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. He comes to us in our need. He comes to us in our ungratefulness, in our sin and rebellion. And he welcomes us with this kindness that leads to our repentance Jesus is helping us to see here that he doesn't just care for the well and the righteous. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came for the sick and the needy and the broken. That is who Jesus came for, the sinful and the spiritually helpless. But then, too, he invites his disciples, he invites you and me this evening to reflect his kingdom priorities by joining him and sacrificially welcoming those who are helpless and needy. Those that, that are lost, that's who Jesus comes to. Jesus comes to the lowly and the lost, those with no status, no position, to the non-persons, to those that can't repay him, to those that can't benefit him in any way, and he gives up his life. He gives up his very position and status and the worship of all the angels in heaven to come down to seek and to pursue you. And then he wants his cross to define you. He wants himself to define you, to shape the way that you follow him. And so Jesus is saying to us here this evening, if you want to follow me, reflect me in the way that you treat children, in the way that you treat those that are weak and helpless, those that can't repay you, those the world says are unimportant and nobodies. The way that you treat them is actually the way that you treat me. What we see here, Jesus takes it a step further and he says he identifies with and he loves his people so much that he's saying, I'm so close to my people. I'm so close to them that what you do to them, you do for me. 
That's why when, when Jesus approaches Paul on the road to Tarsus, he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Jesus is so close to his people that what we do for the weak and the lowly among us, we're actually doing for him. So the question for us tonight is, who are those that you deem insignificant, that you deem unworthy, that they're not valuable or they don't measure up? Who are the non-persons even um, and the ungrateful and the helpless around you that you can serve? Jesus is trying to get us to see that our expectations must be informed by and shaped by him and his cross, that service and his sacrifice for us, by the fact that his grace and his kindness and in his love, he came to rescue us, he came to love us, he came to die for us, that his grace and kindness are for us. He's trying to redefine us as his broken people who are sinful and needy, but are loved and redeemed by his grace. We've been brought near, we've been shown kindness, we've been given life. We've been made sons and daughters of the king and family members of the living God. That is who he's wanting us to see that we are. And when we are shaped by and defined by the cross, we begin to love people like Jesus does. We begin to represent his love and his service for us to those around us, to those that can't repay us. So we love and we serve people, not based on what we can get from them, um, not what they can do for us, and not based on how appreciative or how grateful they are for us, but we serve and we empty ourselves because that's what Jesus does for us, because Jesus serves and empties himself for us. And then Jesus says, do this in my name. Do this out of delight and enjoyment, representing me to the world around you, especially to the weak and the broken and the needy, the insignificantly and the, and the lowly, those that the world rejects and says are non-persons, bring me to them. But we have to be filled by Jesus, by his spirit, and defined by him and his cross, because if we're defined by anything else, our priorities are going to be completely broken, and we're going to sputter out really quickly. We're going to get tired of caring for other people and for not getting anything in return, for being constantly undervalued and underappreciated. We're going to be frustrated and bitter and resentful people. But what would our church look like? What would the woodlands look like if we even began to approximate the type of love that Jesus is describing here, the type of service here? You know, we might have great theology and might have all the answers, um, but people really don't care what you know. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care about them. When we understand the gospel, that Jesus came to seek and to save the lost, that he died and he rose again to rescue us from our sin, that he took all of our sin on the cross and he paid the debt that we couldn't pay to make us his very own, to give us his status as dearly loved and perfect child, when that defines us, then our expectations for following Jesus will be gospel-centered, they'll be cross-centered, and we'll begin to reflect his kingdom priorities of love and service, especially for the least among us. Let me close with this. John Wesley was a pastor in England in the 1700s, and this uh, was, was his motto that was attributed to him. John Wesley says this. He says, because of the cross, do all the good that you can by all the means you can in all the ways you can, in all the places you can, at all the times you can, for all the people you can, for as long as you can. Because Jesus went to the cross, 
and took all of our sin on himself, and he loved us and died for us while we were still sinners. He calls us to, as recipients of his love and service and sacrifice, to give up our status, to give up our broken expectations and be, become shaped by his cross, by his love and his service for us. Do you know this one that came to serve you in this way this evening? Do you know this one who sacrificed himself to bring you in? If you don't, ask him to meet you in your need. Ask him for the faith to, to come to him, to trust in him, and to rest in his love and sacrifice for you. And if you do know him this evening, who are the non-persons around you that you can love and serve? We don't serve and follow Jesus to get him to love us, to get him to celebrate us anymore, to get his favor or his smile, because he's already given all of it to us in Jesus. He already loves you more than he can love anything else. You already have the fullness of his smile and the promise that he will never turn away from you because he abandoned Jesus on the cross and he refuses to do that to his children. So this evening... Where are you serving? Where are you following and looking out for those among you who are the least among you, for those who are broken and needy and hurting? Jesus is calling us to reflect him in the way that he pursues life and resurrection, and it comes through death, and it comes through suffering, and it comes through humility. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love for us, for the way that you chase after us, and you refuse to let us go. Uh, we thank you that you uh, do not give up on us, that even when we're hurt, when we're confused, when we're angry and fearful, um, you do not shy away from us, but you continue to move towards us. May this table this evening be a place of rest and comfort and nourishment this evening as we come to you and taste of your service that you've given for us, of your death and resurrection for us. It's in Christ's name we come. Amen.